Hey easy friends, my name is Neil and welcome to this episode 103 of the Get Your Comic Con podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio direct to your listening device. Of course, as I keep saying, you can also now check us out on YouTube because I am continuing to film myself fumbling through each and every one of these podcasts. Before I kick off this week, I just want to say if you can hear a bunch of very random noise in the background, I am very sorry. They have decided to dig up the road literally right outside my window and they're also mowing the lawns. Yep. So for the next month, I have the sound of nothing but a jackhammer outside my window. So that is going to be really good fun and really conducive to recording a good podcast. But anyway, the show must go on. So this episode, I'm going to wrap up some of the latest stories from across the world of film, TV, comic books, etc. I'm going to be reviewing a brand new Prime video series called Gen V, which you will know as a spin-off to The Boys. And we're also going to be looking at a couple of comic books that I really want to talk to you about. So without further ado, let's head over to the news desk. First up this week, The Flash literally just came home in the UK on DVD, Blu-ray and 4K last week. But from this week, as I am recording this, you can now pick up your copy of Blue Beetle on digital platforms across the UK. The film is going to be coming to DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, Steelbook, etc. in early October. So you don't have long to wait if you are a physical media fan. But just to clue you in on what is available with this film, you get a four-part documentary called Generations Blue Beetle. Told in distinct chapters, you can explore the journey of the actors, the filmmakers, and everyone who brought Blue Beetle to the big screen for the first time ever. Audiences will be immersed in the POV of filmmakers who showcase their experiences on set and in their creative studios making the story of this DC character a reality. There's another feature which I watched last night called Nana Knows Best, which uh, focuses on Nana's transformation from the adorable Abuelita into the machine gun wielding revolutionary and stopping for a few of her most fun moments on set throughout the production. There is also a two-part featurette called Scarab Vision, where Shola Maraduena hosts uh, a series of kind of scene study walkthroughs that showcase on, uh, how the Scarab works and how it plays into some of Blue Beetle's most epic moments. So those are the bonus features that you can get with the film. Uh, it's available in the US, I believe, from uh, now as I'm recording this as well. Uh, it released on Monday in the UK. It'll be Tuesday in the US. So Wednesday, by the time you watch this, you'll be able to buy it in both. Uh, and it is coming to DVD, Blu-ray and uh, 4K in the UK from October the 30th, 2023. So that is Blue Beetle coming home for you to enjoy it as much as you want. We also have huge reason to celebrate this week because the Writers Guild of America and the A. MPTP have finally come to a tentative deal that could see the end of the writer's strikes which have been running for almost 150 days at this point. So they were back at the table towards the end of last week. They continued their talks over the weekend which was definitely a indication that things were going really really well and then we finally got the news just at the end of the weekend that a tentative deal has been struck and that the studio heads have all come to compromise with the Writers Guild over the certain topics that were kind of the sticking points. So the use of AI, the minimum numbers of writers in the writers room on certain TV shows and uh, minimum payments and kind of all of that back end stuff. So we don't know the full details of it yet. The final uh, legal language is still being hammered out. 
And what will have to happen after that is that the deal will need to be put to all of the members of the Writers Guild for them to vote on whether they approve the deal or not. So we are probably still looking at the strike lasting for another two to three weeks maybe, depending on how quickly they can turn it around. But certainly there is a very bright light at the end of the tunnel, which could see writers getting back to work by mid to late October. There is no deal yet for the actors. There is no hope that the studios will get back around the table with the actors, which could potentially get them back to work maybe slightly later in the year. Uh, there is a bit of wiggle room now. So obviously all of our favourite shows were kind of on hiatus anyway when the strikes began. So what can happen now tentatively is that writers, once they have made that vote, if they agree to the deal, can start writing uh, obviously they can't just start filming things straight away because nothing is written so they can start writing new episodes of shows and movie scripts can now continue to be developed uh, giving the uh, AMPTP and the studios a little bit more time to negotiate with the actors because obviously the writers need time to get a body of work together before filming can begin so all being well fingers crossed if they can finalize this deal and get something on the table that the actors uh, union is happy with then we could see production on shows and movies starting up again, possibly at the very end of this year, if not giving everyone a bit of a break over Christmas and starting in January. So we may see some TV shows and things back early-ish next year, maybe March time. I think really important to note for some of the shows that we would cover on this podcast, um, we may see seasons of things like Superman and Lois not happening until maybe summer if they were to start early or basically skipping a whole year and not starting until September or October of 2024. And the reason that I say that is because there are certain types of shows that are going to be easier to get back into production and get ready to air than others. So if you were to look at a late night talk show, they can start almost immediately as a writer can start writing. If you look at a crime procedural drama they need to have scripts fully written before they can start shooting, which may give them you know, a few extra weeks production before they get to air. If we were looking at a show like Superman and Lois or Stranger Things or something which is very, very effects heavy, then they're going to take even longer to be prepared before they can go to air. So I think what we're likely to see is... Uh, once a deal has been ratified by the writers, the talk shows will all start pretty quickly, although they will struggle to find guests, um, but they will be back up and running. And then as the uh, actor strike comes to an end, wherever that might be, the things that will come back first are the kind of the, 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 and they said low production, that's not the right wording, the kind of the simpler productions will start first and then slowly over time we'll see more complex things coming back to the screen given more time to, to give themselves the right kind of product. So that is a very positive step. We'll keep you posted uh, on what happens next. Fingers crossed, as I say, the writers will agree to the deal, the actors will get back around the table and we should hopefully see things kind of coming back to normal in early 2024. But that is very positive news and also great to hear that they've been able to get some compromise on what is kind of general sweeping uh, sweeping generalization has been said on us all points that they were looking to negotiate on so hopefully a good deal for everyone all around there and then lastly in the news i wanted to just cover off a brand new trailer which dropped over the weekend for the upcoming latest season of doctor who now um wow Unexpected. So we all knew that David Tennant was returning, Catherine Tate was returning, and that Russell T. Davis, who brought the show back uh, nearly 20 years ago, is it now, uh, was also returning. 
for this. So there was expectations. I think expectations have been blown out of the water by this trailer. So um, if you're watching this on YouTube, I will show you a little clip now and you'll get a little snippet of audio if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform. Sometimes I think there's something missing. Like I had something lovely and it's gone. I lie in bed thinking, what have I lost? This friend called Donna Noble. I had to wipe her memory to save her life. If she remembers me, she will die. So what happens next? The spaceship crashes right in front of her. It's like she's drawing us in. What the hell? I think the biggest surprise that we're all going to take away from this trailer is the scale and scope of Doctor Who at this point. Doctor Who has always tried to tell very big stories, but has had to do that within a BBC budget. And I think it has looked great. It has looked great in the last few years, but it has struggled with the budget that it has. And now, obviously, it has a brand new deal behind it, whereby it will continue to air on the BBC in the UK, for those of us here. But if you are in international territories, then you're going to be watching Doctor Who now on Disney+. Plus. So it was on BBC America, for instance, for the US. That will now be on Disney+. Plus. And that brings with it a kind of uh, a deal, which means bigger budget is available. It's it's never been disclosed how much the BBC was able to do a deal for with Disney to, to have Doctor Who as an, as an exclusive show. But certainly, I think we're going to expect to see the latest seasons having a budget along the lines of something like, say, The Mandalorian or the Star Wars shows or the Marvel shows. Maybe not quite to that level, but certainly bringing it closer to that than what we've seen in recent years. And so this trailer looks huge. We now know that Neil Patrick Harris is playing the toy maker, which has long been rumoured. We don't see any of Jinx Monsoon, which I've just realised, actually. Um, but there is plenty of Catherine Tate, plenty of David Tennant, and it's it looks like this is going to be a really exciting set of specials. So this is three special episodes, which is celebrating the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, and they will all be airing in November. We don't know exactly when in November. There's no exact date yet, but they will be airing in November 2023. Uh, so we do not have long to wait. It's a matter of weeks until it returns. And this looks like some of the most theatrical work that Russell T. Davis has ever done with Doctor Who. It looks huge. The special effects do look great. You can see that that new budget has been put to really, really good use. And there is some huge stuff going on. I'm interested to see that Unit now has a uh, Avengers-style tower in the middle of London. So there's clearly uh, a building out of the world of Doctor Who again, which we kind of we saw with Russell T. Davis the first time round with the invention of things like Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures, but under kind of subsequent showrunners um, had kind of brought things back in a bit. So as Torchwood came to an end, it's not a name that's ever really been mentioned all that much, other than the odd Easter egg ever again, and and obviously Jack did a, make a couple of very brief appearances, but. The world of Doctor Who under Russell T. Davis the first time around felt very big and very rich and it became very much refocused on just the Doctor. And now I think we're going to see that open up again with especially rumours that there might be more spin-offs coming in the with this whole Disney Plus deal. So there's plenty to, to see and get out of this, but it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes when it returns. Again, this trailer has just one shot of Shuti Gatwa, um, who is taking over as the 15th Doctor, so David Tennant, remember, is back for any of these three specials, and then it passes over to Shooty. So we've got a lot. We need to understand why uh, the the Doctor generated into a new persona, but the new persona is their old persona, but not a degeneration. And then we need to understand what, again, is going to happen to David Tennant 
to then turn into Shooty Gatwood's version of the Doctor. So there's a lot of ground to cover in three specials, but it looks huge. And if uh, talk on the internet is to be believed, this is the most excited that fans have been for Doctor Who in a very long time, which is wonderful to see because it's a show that deserves that longevity and it deserves the best budget, the best casting, the best writers that British sci-fi has to throw at. So I'm excited. Again, we don't know when it's going to return. We just know that all three specials will air in November 2023. So please do keep your eyes peeled to our website, www.getyourcomicon.co.uk for all of the latest news on Doctor Who, Blue Beetle, The Strikes, and everything else that is breaking in the world of film, TV, and pop culture. And also, if you want to stay up to date with the latest breaking stories, then do follow us on social media as well. You can find us on all major platforms at Get Your Comic Con, or you can find me personally at Neil Vag. And that is all from the news desk today. So I am going to head over to, uh, let's go comic book corner, shall we? And talk about a book which is releasing this week. First up in comic book corner, I want to talk to you about uh, this week's latest issue of Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic. So this is a series which started uh, just back around the time of San Diego Comic-Con and is the second Batman Beyond series to be written by the team of Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. You should know those names if you've been listening to this podcast regularly because I did sit down and chat with them about this book at San Diego and you can check that out in a previous episode or you can watch the interview over on our YouTube channel. They are working with artist Max Dunbar, colorist Sebastian Cheng, and letterist uh, Hassan Otsame Elhau, and uh, cover art on this issue is once again by Dunbar and Cheng. Uh, let me give you the synopsis. So, in the darkness beyond, a looming threat waits. Behold the Court of Owls. But who do they seek and why? After escaping the wrath of Killer Croc, Batman comes face to beak with the most terrifying core ever to exist. But in order to get the answers he seeks, he must be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Can Batman act against his mission to protect? All this and the truth behind the magic is revealed. So I have talked a little bit about Batman Beyond on this podcast before. I think what Colin and Jackson did with uh, the Neo-Gotham storyline was really exciting. And what they are now doing with Neo-Gothic is equally as exciting, if not more so. They have told a very interesting story with Terry that kind of starts off very much back in Neo-Gotham and carries all the way through where we're seeing him a little older, a little wiser, and now where we find him here in in Neo-Gothic is without Bruce Wayne, who has now, spoiler alert, died. And and if you've read Neo-Gotham, you understand all of this. Um, And across the three issues so far, we're seeing this really interesting story that is taking place kind of above ground in Gotham and below ground in Gotham, exploring what is underneath Neo-Gotham, but is also... And perhaps more importantly, a really exciting story about Terry McGuinness and how he is learning to be Batman without Bruce in his ear, without that mentor figure, he a father figure even as well. And so across the, the, the first two issues, we've seen him tackle Killer Croc. We've seen him delve into what is underneath Gotham in the hunt for these missing kids who are uh, who were taken to a place known as the Garden, which... I mean, given the name alone, should hopefully, maybe, possibly bring in some poison ivy. But what has um, really kind of made this story pop for me is how brilliantly they have now brought in the Court of Owls. So 
if you're watching this podcast, I'm sure you have a great knowledge of Batman. Uh, so the Court of Owls were first introduced in 2012 by Scott Snyder in his what is absolutely now a legendary run on Batman. And he introduced the Court of Owls as this mysterious secret society cabal that has been pulling the strings in Gotham from the very day that it was first founded. And so they became a really huge looming presence in DC Comics. And what Scott did with them was absolutely fantastic. They have been a presence ever since in that decade that has lapsed but we've also seen them be the main villain in video games like Gotham Knights the main villain in TV series like Gotham Knights and I what I feel is that nobody has quite managed to find the right way to use them that really lives up to what Scott Snyder did because he used them in a very specific way that challenged Bruce in a very specific way and so the way that Colin and uh, Kelly, uh, Colin and Kelly, Colin and Jackson have used them in uh, in Batman Beyond Neo Gothic is really exciting because it's come at the perfect time. I can imagine the two of them discussing whether or not it was the right time to use them and to have Terry interact with them for the first time. And the reason that it works so well is that obviously the overarching story is that Terry is learning to be Batman without Bruce. And he has always had Bruce in his ear to rely on and to support him, begrudgingly so or lovingly so, through thick and thin, through all of his teenage years, through all of those ups and downs. And now he finds himself an adult without this support, facing up against one of Bruce's greatest villains, uh, and, you know, a, a villain that Bruce was intimately knowledgeable about. But he has he doesn't have that knowledge base to fall back on. And that is going to force Terry to act alone to act by himself to make those decisions to do what is right to save gotham and to save the people of gotham um without bruce's support and what better way to do that than with a villain that reminds us as to who bruce was as a character and i just think they've done that at the right time incredibly well and obviously this is this so they haven't been in issue one and two this issue three as i said available now um is the first time we're seeing terry go against them and they have tied them into this idea of the garden that's underneath the city, the idea that the city is dying, so Gotham is dying, is a very startling phrase that's used on page one of this book. Um, and so I just think this is this is the best use I've seen of the, the Court of Owls since they were originally created, which is very, very exciting because they became a very, very hot commodity in DC and, as I was saying, have, have never quite landed the same way that Snyder used them, but I think there's potential here that this this could live up to what Snyder first invented with them, which is very, very exciting. There's also a lot going on in Neo-Gothic. There's a very complex narrative because you have events going on above ground uh, with who is kind of taking over the city, who is rotting the city from within, which is obviously nothing new for Gotham, but you know. Uh, and then you have what's going on underneath. So they, they, you know, at first they were in the sewers with Killer Croc. They've then gone lower and lower and reached the Court of Owls. But you've also kind of got to wrap your head around the fact that the court is also involved with this mysterious garden. You've got Kyle, who is a de facto kind of sidekick for Terry in this story, who is one of the, the cat clones that comes from this whole Selina Kyle storyline. And there's the dynamic between between Terry and Kyle as they're learning to kind of work together because they really only have each other for support down in this complete radio silent underground underbelly of Gotham. 
and there's a lot of elements but there is such an irresistible pacing to it that uh, Colin and Jackson write the, the book with that the whole thing just feels really easy to digest. You're being thrown all of these concepts. You know, Kyle has magic. The the owls have this bioluminescence that's to do with the garden. There is the kind of AI entity that's running the Batcave or potentially running Gotham. There's all of these things above ground. There are loads of elements, but you just... You're given them in the right dose at the right time in the structure of the story that it's just really easy to follow and really easy to, to keep up with, which is great for a book which could be conceived as so complex. And then you get to the end of this book where you learn about Kyle's magic, and I'm not going to spoil it here, but there is uh, a very interesting cliffhanger that's going to lead into a very interesting uh, issue four that will be out next month, so I, I can't wait to see where it goes. But... Um, you can read my full review of Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic issue 3 over on our website. I gave this book four stars, but if you head over there and look at the latest comic book reviews, you'll see it. And please do go pick up Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic issue 1 to 3, available in stores and on digital platforms now. The builders are back from their lunch break, so beware! But the next book that I want to tell you about is another issue 3. This time it's issue 3 of uh, Joanne Stara and Carrie Randolph's brilliant sirens of the city uh, so this is a boom studios book you can pick up issues uh one to three now and it is a really wonderful story set in 1980s new york that is doing something kind of political sort of supernatural and entirely awesome so if I read you a little synopsis. So previously, in Chapter 2, Layla, our main character, was bond with Davy, strengthens as she learns as she leans on him for support. Rome desperately searches the city for Layla and has a chance meeting with Marisol, who warns him of the potential consequences of Layla's pregnancy. Marisol takes Layla to meet her family, her coven, in the hopes of helping Layla understand her power and the danger that is growing inside her, but Marisol's mother, the leader of the sirens, wants Layla's child for her own purposes. And so it's what Joanne Stara has done with the story is created this really, really rich, really dynamic world of the supernatural in New York in the 1980s. Uh, and it's really wonderfully encapsulated by the artwork of Carrie Randolph. The two are working hand in hand to create something very, very special. And it does have this very political, and I've talked about this because I'm, I'm sure I reviewed issue one on here. Um, they have this very political kind of undercurrent where there is talk about kind of uh, abortion and and women's rights and that does exist as a as an undercurrent uh, but what is now the case in issue three is you have this really wonderful supernatural story that has in a way it's almost like rivers of london if you've read that it has its own unique mythology and this really wonderfully strong set of foundations to build upon so this is a limited series, but there is absolutely so much opportunity for storytelling within it because what Joanne Stara has done is create such a wonderful mythology for all of the different factions, all of the different covens, the different races that you see in here. It, New York feels alive and feels real in the story, let alone the visuals of the book. And within just the two issues before this, uh, Layla, our lead character, has become a really compelling lead and we really feel for her. She, you know, she has this pregnancy that was, was not planned. She had initially gone to abort this baby, but you know, situations around her meant that that didn't happen and she's ended up in the city and she's just bouncing from person to person trying to find someone to help her. 
and she's coming across all of these witches and vampires and demons and these different covens that all have a different point of view as to what they want this baby for or to get rid of this baby for and in issue three we're really now just flying at full steam at full pelt um and this story is completely in action and once again carrie randall's colors are what absolutely makes it most of this book is black and white the the kind of the siren culture that layla is descended from has these shades of blue around them their their power is kind of shown as almost slightly water-based in a way which looks beautiful the the succubi which uh include Layla's partner and father of their unborn child uh have this uh, red coloring to them and other factions have their own little hints of color that just help to separate the different key aspects of the book and it's just beautiful i'm scrolling through it as i'm talking about it and the only other real color are just different highlights so you have the purple in Layla's hair or in this issue you have the colors of a stained glass window in a huge cathedral that she goes to visit and it just balances out all of these really wonderful elements from this very potentially hard-hitting and emotional storyline with these great characters with this great mythology and these cool supernatural elements you know there is plenty of blood there's plenty of creature design it is just an all-round really well-produced book and at three issues in it's a it's a real page turner and it's a book that i jump to every single week when it's released and that's why i wanted to bring it back to this podcast again to just remind people that you know i do talk about a lot of dc i do read a lot of big publisher books but there are some really wonderful indie books out there and this is one of those boom is doing a wonderful job of telling unique creator stories and this is one that absolutely deserves to be read and enjoyed and discussed because it is so i don't want to say magical because that just seems really schlocky given that there is magic in the story it's just a really 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 good book and I cannot recommend enough that you run out and pick up a copy. Uh, I don't want to say any more because I don't want to spoil it, but there are some great twists in this uh, particular issue around who may or may not be Layla's mum and how that might impact on the next couple of issues. And we get some some really great supernatural action in this one as well. They really dive into the action of this book uh, where maybe before we've leaned into a little bit more of the emotionality of the story. So that is all I'm going to say. Other than Sirens of the City, Issue 3, Boom Studios, pick up all three issues now on digital or uh, on in where, wherever you buy your comic books. And so the last thing that I want to talk to you about this week is uh, a spoiler-free, I have to point out, very much spoiler-free review of the first few episodes of Prime Video's Gen V. This is the boys' spin-off. Uh, it's set in the diabolical world of the boys. Gen V expands the universe to Godolkin University, the prestigious superhero-only college where students train to be the next generation of heroes, preferably with lucrative endorsements. You know what happens when soups go bad, but not all superheroes start out corrupt. Beyond the typical college chaos of finding oneself and partying, these kids are facing explosive situations, literally. As the students vie for popularity and good grades, it's clear that the stakes are much higher when superpowers are involved. When the group of young soups discover that something bigger and sinister is going on at school, they put to the test. They're put to the test. Will they be the heroes or the villains of their stories? So before I get into it and completely forget, uh, the series will premiere with three episodes on Friday, September the 29th, so that's this week, followed by weekly episodes leading up to the epic season finale on Friday the 3rd of November. The series uh, stars Jazz Sinclair as Marie Moreau, 
Chance Perdomo as Andre Anderson. Uh, it also stars Lizzie Broadway, Maddie Phillips, London Thor, Derek Liu, Aza German, Shelley Kahn, Clancy Brown, Pat- Patrick Schwarzenegger, Sean Patrick Thomas. Who else do I need to pick off this list while I'm trying to pick off the most important people? Uh, Maya J. Bastidas. I probably pronounced that wrong. Apologies. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's a, the cast list on IMDb is, as always, not in a particular order, and I don't want to say anything that might spoil anyone who is in it. So I have seen episodes one to six of Gen V. There's only two episodes that I have not seen. Again, I reiterate, I'm keeping this spoiler free. Uh, this series is definitely set in the diabolical world of the boys it's uh, it took me a couple of episodes to get into it if i'm completely honest it felt watching the first episode like they were trying a little bit too hard to be edgy now we all know how crass the boys can be or how it will push boundaries in terms of the things that they will show on screen and the same can be said of this but something about it in the first episode, I think there was just so many F-bombs, so much drug taking, so much partying that it was like, wow, this is giving me like 2000s skins party on acid dialed up to a 12 level. And it just felt a little bit too much. But quickly within episodes kind of two and three, it really settles into things. I think from the outset, the cast is absolutely amazing. So Jazz Sinclair and Chance Podomo, both of whom come from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, are absolutely excellent in their roles. Uh, Jazz, in particular, has a really, really wonderful turn as Marie. So uh, the series kicks off with Marie. Although it is an ensemble cast, Marie is kind of our way into this world so we we enter this world through her history learning who she is and following her as she goes to godolkin university and there the world kind of expands to include these other characters so including chance's character andre uh marie's roommate emma played by lizzie broadway and then these kind of the the sort of the jock and his girlfriend so golden boy played by patrick schwarzenegger and then Kate, played by Maddie Phillips. And they kind of become this core cast of, of people, including, sorry, I should also say, uh, London Thor and uh, Derek Liu, who play Jordan Lee. Both of them play Jordan Lee. Um, and so, kind of, once you've, once you've got to know Marie, you, you enter into this ensemble cast through her. But there is, similar to The Boys, there is an overarching storyline which becomes very important and is kind of picked up on at the end of the first episode and becomes more and more important as we go on. But in a slightly different approach to The Boys, there is that sort of university aspect of this and that that younger aspect and the finding yourself. So although we've seen characters like uh, um, Starlight, I was going to call it Ultraviolet, characters like Starlight finding themselves and kind of finding their place within the seven and learning about the corruption of Vought and all the things that we've seen happen in the boys this is this is different there is more of an aspect of kind of the young people finding who they are and the the superpowers become a really wonderful analogy for that so Jordan Lee's character for instance uh, their superpower is that they can well one of their powers is that they can switch gender so London Thor plays the female version of Jordan and Derek Liu plays the male version and there is kind of a trans allegory there but also just a a general identity kind of allegory there in that you know who who is the prevailing personality which one is the one that people might like more which is the one that is more likely to have a partner which is the one that is more successful it's there are two kind of vying personalities and two different sides to jordan that 
uh, are really really interesting to see how people will interact depending on which one they're they're confronted by and so that is a really wonderful storyline with Marie there is this really complex and difficult family history that she needs to reconcile with and she is very much somebody who comes into Godolkin University not knowing what to expect there are all these things going on that really do pick up on on plot lines from the boys so kind of the popularity of characters the endorsements that they have the followers that they have on social media but how is that any different to what young people experience now anyway with finding an audience online so it it, although it has this kind of hyper-realist way of the boys telling stories, it still very, very much strikes to what is the real experience of young people today. Um, there is a very complex relationship between Golden Boys, again, Patrick Schwarzenegger's character, uh, Kate, his girlfriend, and Andre, who is his best friend. You know, there is a lot that happens between those characters. Emma, Lizzie Broadway, does an amazing uh, job of playing Emma. Emma has uh, so emma's power is that she can shrink down to become absolutely tiny but what you learn very quickly is that the way that she does that is again a really really tough at some points to swallow quite literally um kind of storyline about eating disorders and the difficulty that people have when they're being pressured to perform by family members or by kind of peers around them and so I think in some cases even more so than The Boys, this this series does a really wonderful job of reflecting real life in the trials and tribulations of its characters. I think when you watch The Boys, the seven are so hyper-realist that it's more of a let's just push the boundaries as much as is physically possible and just see what these characters, you know, how deplorable can Homelander be? Um, so I, I think there's less of a kind of connection between the audience on an emotional level with those characters. It's more of a just let's just watch this spectacle play out whereas this feels a little bit more grounded and a little bit more real which is you know it's good at helping set the series apart from from its mothership show Uh, there are characters that float in between i won't spoil any of those and across the six episodes that i've seen it really does pick up the pace very very quickly it does everything that the boys does well just as well the production value is great there are (laughs) um there are things that you will not expect to see that you will see. There are things that will turn your stomach. There are plenty of things that will make you laugh. There are plenty of moments that will really tug at the heartstrings as well because, as it says in the kind of the synopsis of this show, they are learning who they are and they're not necessarily as corrupt as heroes that are in the... you know, who have made it to Vault Tower and are in the Seven R. So there's a lot more... Similar to Starlight, there is a lot more push and pull between popularity and kind of your own moral compass which is really interesting to see where that leads these people to particularly when um the uh the the dean of godolkin university uh indira shetty so played by shelly con when she begins to get involved with the characters and you start to learn her involvement with with vort and other things that are going on and Clancy Brown as Professor Rich Brinkerhoff uh, has a very intimate kind of role in shaping characters who will go from Godolkin University into being a member of the Seven. And so they use the rich legacy of the boys and the boys' storytelling and the boys' characters to really beef up some of the, the personalities at Godolkin to make sure that they feel as real as our as our leads, as our ensemble. Um, and so I just think from a storytelling perspective, it's a really well-constructed show. And... Uh, 
it has the same production values as the boys so it, it all looks great from start to finish i wonder whether uh you know in conversations that i've had with people about the boys often people will either say to me they absolutely love it or they can't make it through the first season because they just find it too crass and because the gen v is very much cut from the same cloth I'm not sure that anybody who isn't already watching The Boys will really be able to buy into this. It may grab a younger audience just because of its younger characters, but for those who I think have found some of what The Boys has done to be a little bit too boundary-pushing, they will find uh, Gen V to be very, very similar. So it's going to be interesting to see how it lands with an audience once it premieres, but from what I have seen, this is a very, very exciting show, and I have enjoyed every single second of it that I've watched. So once my initial kind of fears were overcome i think there is a, a lot to really enjoy from this particularly from this wonderful cast they they really have cast the show incredibly well and that's the most important thing i think i'm going to stop there because again i do not wish to veer into spoiler territory but that is gen v which is available on prime video from friday the 29th of september with the first three episodes and then streaming new episodes weekly through november the 3rd and i believe will lead into the fourth season of the boys which should hopefully come next year so it's going to be interesting to see if any of these characters will then start to show up in the boys and whether that becomes a very kind of fluid movement between the two um because it does you know if you watch screens in the background and things like if you know if you pick up on small details that are going on around what is happening at godolkin then you can see that this is very much kind of happening concurrently to things that are happening in the boys and so it feels very you know it's not in name only that this is a show in that world they very much could fluidly run together and and move in and out of each other which is really really great to see actually so please do watch it when it premieres this Friday and let me know what you think of it. Find me on social media at Neil Vag and let me know what you thought of those first few episodes and you can read my full review of it over on the website, which is, I don't need to tell you, but www.getyourcomicon.co.uk. And that is it for this episode before the builders are properly back from their lunch break because they worked for like five minutes and stopped. So I will be back in a couple of weeks with another brand new episode where I am going to be talking to you about the fourth season of uh, Shudder's Creepshow, which is premiering on October the 13th. I have watched all episodes. Uh, it's like six episodes, 12 stories or something like that I've watched. And uh, the embargo for that list on October the 6th. So you'll be able to read my review from then. But next episode, I'll be talking about that. I've got a bunch of horror films lined up, which I'm going to be watching. And uh, tomorrow night, as I'm recording this, I will also be going to check out 20th Century uh, brand new sci-fi epic from director Gareth Edwards, The Creator, which I'm really looking forward to. So I will also be telling you about that alongside plenty more comic books. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, and I will see you very soon. Bye. <laughs>